0: Key Economic Releases Affecting Fixed Income Yields Insights into Sectors Influencing Fixed Income Securities How AAM Plans to Capitalize on These Themes for Your Fixed Income Portfolio The Portfolio Fix is a podcast series featuring members of AAM's Investment and Portfolio Management Team. We will discuss the timely issues affecting the fixed income investments of our insurance clients.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Portfolio Fix, a podcast series from AAM. My name is Patrick McGeever and I'm a member of AAM's investment team. Today, Marco Bravo will provide AAM's latest views on the economy. And then, Leah Savjo will join us to discuss the turbulent banking sector. So welcome, Marco.
0: Thanks, Pat. Great to be here.
1: Well, our last podcast was on January 30th, 2023. Uh, It seems like we've lived a lifetime since then, right? Um, Since then, the Fed's met twice and raised rates by 25 basis points in each of their meetings. Now the target Fed funds rate is 4.75% to 5%. We've had... Banking system stress pop up in early March with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, followed by UBS acquiring a pretty vulnerable Credit Suisse. But if you look at the Treasury curve, uh, it's been volatile over the past two and a half months, but as we sit today, it's really not all that different from our last podcast. Um, During that episode, you mentioned that the macroeconomic outlook is greatly influenced by the outlook for inflation. And we've had a lot of inflation-related data released over the past week, including the CPI report. So what did we learn from that? Sure.
0: Well, the March CPI report kind of continues to show inflation moderating, uh, albeit at a continued slow pace. Um, So, for example, the the headline CPI number for March uh, was up only 0.1% on a month-over-month basis, and that was largely driven by a fall in energy prices, although we may see some reversal of that, you know, next month, given what what OPEC did with with supply. Uh, But we also saw some easing in core-related prices, core being... Excluding food and energy, and if you look at it on a year-over-year basis, the headline number is a uh, fell from six percent to five percent on a year-over-year basis last month. So, trending in the right direction, but but slowly. I would say some other kind of key takeaways is uh, at the core level, uh, we did see a slowing in shelter-related inflation, and we've been we've been waiting, you know, for the shelter related cpi numbers to kind of begin reflect the reality of falling home prices and rent so we'll see if this is the start of a trend there Uh, and then when you look at poor services less housing the fed has kind of referenced this metric as being most influenced by the tight labor market and rising wages Uh, we saw that number fall slightly last month but continues to run uh, above 5% on a year-over-year basis. So uh, we, we'll need to see some kind of slack in the labor market and slowing in wage growth to continue to see this number trend lower.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, that rent and owner's equivalent rent, that that decelerated meaningfully in the March report. Uh, looks like it was down 30 basis points. Uh, so that's that's a positive development for sure. Uh, Yesterday afternoon, following the CPI report, the Fed released their minutes from their March meeting, uh, which took place right in the middle of the the banking crisis. Uh, What did we learn from those minutes?
0: Sure. I think big picture, it was largely uh, the minutes that is largely a kind of a non-event, at least for the market, didn't see much reaction. And, you know, reading through the minutes, the the Fed officials still see the labor markets uh, remaining too tight and inflation too high. Again, no surprise there. Uh, But officials did kind of express concern about the banking sector uh, and specifically the potential uh, for tighter credit conditions and which could ultimately lead uh, to a, a more severe slowdown in the economy than what the Fed was kind of predicting um, back in December. And in fact, uh, we saw kind of Fed officials change their tune and, and mentioned the increased risk of a, quote, mild recession. So I think it's safe to say that perhaps without the banking crisis, had that not occurred, there would have been a greater chance that the Fed would have raised rates by 50 basis points at their March meeting instead of the 25 basis points.
1: Okay, so effectively the bank sector is uh, doing some of the Fed's work for them uh, with the tighter lending conditions. Uh, maybe you can uh, we can wrap this up by just talking about what do you think the market is pricing in right now in terms of additional hikes or cuts uh, in the next couple of months
0: yeah for sure the there's no doubt that the uh, the banking crisis um has resulted in a significant repricing by the markets of future uh fed action and right now as we sit here today markets are pricing in a 66 percent chance that the fed raises rates by 25 basis points at their next meeting uh, and a 34% chance that there's no rate hike. So there's, you know, a pricing that the Fed may actually pause next month or in May. Uh, And then looking beyond that into the second half of this year, the market is now pricing in two to three rate cuts, uh, 25 basis points each. Uh, That was not the case, you know, on March the 7th. You know, the day before, have kind of everything um, hit the fan with respect to the banking sector. So clearly, you know, today the market believes that the economy is going to slow, uh, is going to get inflation to come down, and cause the Fed to pivot and begin cutting rates in the second half of this year.
1: Okay, Marco, thanks a lot for all the information. It's great as usual. Uh, we'll be speaking in the near future. Right. Thanks, Next up, we're joined by the busiest employee at AAM, Leah Savageau, our banks and financial institutions analyst. Uh, in the past month, we've had bank failures, forced mergers, and now earnings season's begun. You're gonna come up for air anytime soon.
2: Um, you know, I hope so. I certainly hope so. But it seems like, you know, we're in very early innings with this whole situation going on right now.
1: Maybe we can start with uh, Silicon Valley Bank. What happened there? Uh, do you believe those events will impact the broader U.S. banking sector? And then what's happened since then?
2: Um, okay, so yeah. Uh, so Silicon Valley Bank was a relatively interesting bank failure. Um, In the sense that it didn't really start as an asset quality issue, but rather a unique liquidity and asset liability mismatch. Um, So as the names imply, Silicon Valley Bank catered to venture capital-backed technology and life science companies. Um, And this client base, as we know, experienced substantial growth in capital during the pandemic, fueled by ultra-low borrowing costs as well as demand for digital services. And so they deposited these large sums of money with Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank in turn invested a large portion of this money into liquid and relatively low risk uh, treasury bonds and mortgage backed securities. And this is fairly typical behavior for banks, especially in an environment of weak loan growth like we were in at the time. But as interest rates began to rise in 2022, Silicon Valley Bank was faced with two problems. The first was that the value of its securities were declining. Um, And the second was that funding markets for venture capital-backed companies started to shut down. And instead of raising cash that was ultimately deposited at the bank, uh, this client base started spending cash, Mm. which ultimately led to deposit withdrawals. Um, We understand that the bank initially dealt with these challenges by offering higher deposit rates and by borrowing the wholesale market uh, so they can meet withdrawal requests without selling securities at a loss. Um, But this became a much less viable long-term option because it raised the cost of their funding um, and was weighing on profitability metrics. Um, So on March 8th, the bank announced that it was undertaking a few actions, um, one of which was to sell a large portion of its available securities portfolio um, that would generate a loss but could be invested in higher yielding short-term treasuries. Um, The bank also announced that it was undertaking a capital raise um, including a mix of common equity and preferred equity. Um, and Silicon Valley's management framed the actions as being motivated by profitability pressures. Um, but anytime time a bank sells liquid assets at a steep loss um, and subsequently raises capital, it's more indicative of a liquidity issue. Um, and this prompted, for lack of a better word, uh, a tsunami of deposit withdrawal requests um, and regulators were forced to step in and close the bank. Now, typically, when there's a crisis of confidence at one bank, it can spread very quickly to other banks with similar characteristics. Um, And in this case, depositors and investors became focused on banks with large concentrations of deposits sourced from venture capital-backed companies, um, and also those with a high concentration of uninsured deposits. Um, And that's what happened to Signature Bank, which failed two days after Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, Signature um, had been a large player in the digital assets arena and had sourced what we estimate as 15% of their total deposits through the cryptocurrency channel. By our accounts, uh, the company also had nearly 95% of its deposit fees comprised of uninsured deposits. Um, And so in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank's failure, uh, depositors also started withdrawing money there rapidly. and regulators were once again forced to step in and close the banks. Mm. Now, uh, in effort to stop the contagion, the FDIC and the Fed stepped in and announced a series of emergency measures uh, following the closure of Signature Bank.
1: Um,
2: and the cornerstone of those actions um, is that they designated closure of Silicon Valley and Signature as systemic risks to the financial system. This allowed the FDIC to provide deposit insurance or use the deposit insurance fund uh, to calm fears by announcing that all depositors at both banks um, to be provided deposit insurance, rather than those deposits that are just under the threshold of $250,000. And then the Fed created a facility called the Bank Turn Funding Program. And this facility seeks to stabilize bank balance sheets by offering loans to banks, and the key here is that unlike other facilities, these loans can be collateralized by certain fixed income securities, um, but they're going to be valued at par instead of market value. And the re- goal here is that um, it's to help banks avoid being forced to sell bonds um, at market prices and realizing substantial losses. I But even with these facilities, certain banks such as First Republic, Pacific West, um, and Western Alliance, just to name a few, have been impacted by low confidence. Um, So it's, you know, it's helped, but there's still the confidence issue that's out there.
1: Okay. It is pretty amazing to me just how fast everything transpired. It's so different from previous eras of bank runs just because it's... Simply a click and you can you get enough clicks, moving money from one place to another, and the run is on, so pretty
2: fascinating yep. to me. Yep, everything, it's um, It's definitely a, a new era of, of being able to digitally transfer assets in deposits in um, yep. a click of a button.
1: Yep. Last month, all of us in the capital markets were spending our weekends doom scrolling Twitter for the next bank failure. Uh, things. Seem to have stabilized over the past couple of weeks. Uh, do you think we're in a bank crisis or have we been given the all clear signal? Um, do you think conditions in the banking sector will impact the broader U.S. credit markets? Anything you provide would be great.
2: Yeah. So, since the failures of Silicon Valley and Signature Bank, we've been closely following certain data sets published by the Federal Reserve. Uh, one of the more important data sets has been the h 41 release um, which is published every Thursday and effectively details factors affecting reserve balances of the banks within the U.S. This data has been especially helpful for, ins- for assessing the industry's usage of emergency liquidity programs such as the Fed discount window um, and the newly established bank term funding program as an indicator of continued funding stress um the key trend that we're seeing is that usage in both the discount window and the bank term funding program has continued to decline since the week of march 15th um and this sort of suggests that the risk of contagion has stabilized um that said the pace of decline has been a bit choppy from week to week Um, and this suggests that some of these draws that we're seeing there could be a little bit more permanent at this stage um so it's something that we're continuing to watch The other important data set has been the H8 release, um, and that's published every Friday. Um, And it basically provides a weekly aggregate balance sheet for all commercial banks in the the US. Um, This data has been especially helpful for assessing the flows of deposits um, on a system-wide basis. Um, And the key trend here is that deposit outflows uh, system-wide appear large on an absolute basis, Um, and so since March 8th, the US banking system has lost 364 billion in deposits. Um, but on a relative basis, that's only 2% of total industry deposits.
1: Um,
2: so it's large, but it's not unmanageable. Okay. Um, the, uh, the other trend is that the pace of deposit outflows appears to be slowing. And that was most evident in the last report where deposit balances were actually a tiny bit positive relative to the prior prior week. Um, but one of the bigger issues uh, that we were seeing um, was the more intense migration of deposits out of smaller banks versus larger banks. And actually, in the first week following the closure of Silicon Valley and Signature, we saw migration into large banks, mm-hmm. um, which we presume was a flight to quality among depositors. Um, it seems that flight of to quality response has lost some steam Uh, The most recent H8 report actually showed that small bank deposits uh, balances actually grew um, by 0.4% from the following week, while large bank deposit balances only grew 0.2%. So clearly a positive data point for small banks. Um, But given that this is aggregate data, we won't know the full impact or the full picture until first quarter financial reports are published and we can Mm -hmm. actually get Bank specific data.
1: Okay. Um, okay now the now, other quick, piece. What the uh, those yep. two those two reports? Can you re- repeat them for us? The H four. Yes.
2: So the H four one. H four um, one. And that's published. And that's published every Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, and it details fact, factors that affect reserve balances of banks in the U.S.
1: And that's an aggregate. Yes. Okay. And the other one is.
2: The H-8 report.
1: H-8, and that comes out on Friday, and that's also an aggregate report?
2: Yes, another aggregate report, and it basically shows a balance sheet for all commercial banks in the U.S.
1: And that's published by the Fed?
2: Yes, both reports are published by the Fed.
1: Thanks. Sorry about that. Go ahead.
2: Nope. Um, Um, Now, the other piece of data that the H8 rebriefs can shed light on is bank borrowing outside of sources affecting reserve balances. Um, So, this captures borrowings from the Federal Home Loan Bank, wholesale debt issuance, and things like that. Um, Borrowings on a system-wide basis remain elevated, and they're running roughly 20% higher from where we were at March 8th levels. For smaller banks, their borrowings are actually 37% higher than on March 8th which is down from 80% the immediate week following the the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature, but they're still elevated. Um, For larger banks, those borrowings have been a little bit choppier on a week basis, uh, but overall the levels are still elevated, with the most recent release showing that borrowings are 40% higher since March 8th. So the concern here is that even though the risk of contagion appears to have stabilized, um, as measured through the emergency liquidity programs, overall wholesale borrowing remains elevated. And these borrowings are typical, typically higher costs than deposits. So as bu- banks rely more on these sources for liquidity and funding, it's going to raise their cost of funds, which will in turn likely impact their ability to extend credit and ultimately lead to h- tighter credit conditions across the United States.
1: Okay, so it seems like... Uh the situation has stabilized somewhat from mid-March, um, but that as a response to the higher borrowing costs of the banks, they've had to uh, restrict their willingness to lend. Uh, is that a fair statement?
2: Yes. I mean, that we're seeing you know more borrowings from wholesale markets, yeah. and that in turn is going to raise their funding costs. And so the concern here is that at what point does ultimately impact their ability to extend credit and lead to tighter credit conditions across the U.S.
1: Okay. Maybe we can wrap up by talking about U.S. banks and the government response. Are are U.S. banks still vulnerable, in your opinion, and what has the government or regulators done in response?
2: Yeah, so I do think, so yes, I do think that banks are still vulnerable. Um, But I think we're moving away from situations where the stresses are caused by acute liquidity issues thanks to the bank's uh, bank term funding program. Um, I think the next phase of this will likely stem from deterioration in lending books as credit conditions tighten from higher funding costs and banks become less willing or able to extend credit. The lending sector that's drawing the most scrutiny right now is commercial real estate since more than a third of those mortgages reside with U.S. banks. We know certain segments of commercial real estate are still dealing with structural headwinds that were accelerated by the pandemic, such as office and remote work. So as credit conditions tighten, asset quality will likely deteriorate and could cause concerns about a bank's viability. Um, In terms of the response from regulators and the government, there hasn't been any specific changes announced, but I think it's reasonable to assume that mid-sized banks will likely see tougher liquidity and capital rules, especially since those rules were eased for smaller banks under the prior administration. Um, They could see more stringent annual stress tests, which is another area that was eased um, during the prior administration. Um, I will say that heading into this year, regulators were considering total loss absorbing capital requirements for large regional banks. Um, and this is a requirement that the largest global US banks have to comply with, and it basically ensures that regulators can employ a single point of entry resolution. Um, where the holding company enters receivership and the solvent operating entities remain open for business. Um, there's some speculation that total loss absorbed capital rules might move up the regulatory agenda in light of what's happened over the past month or so, um, but there hasn't been anything definitive announced yet at this point, um, so we'll stay tuned there.
1: Okay, so those regulatory changes, those probably aren't going to be implemented in the near term? It's, it sounds like more of a 2024 type event at the earliest. Is that <sighs> fair?
2: Um, you know, it's hard to tell. So the Fed and the regulators are doing their due diligence on what exactly caused um, you know, the failures at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and areas of vulnerability for some of the banks that we know have been uh, suffering from low confidence. And we'll see what those results Um, suggest. And I think that could maybe accelerate um, some of the regulatory agenda. Uh, But for now, it seems uh, until we get that, um, you know, it's just reasonable to assume that we're going to see greater requirements, but we don't know how quickly they will be implemented.
1: Okay, Leah. Thanks a lot for providing all that information. It's been a very uh, confusing time for those of us that are not experts in this area. So Thanks for, for providing the color there. Much appreciated. Uh, of All course, right.
2: Thank you for having me on.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, of course, we want to thank uh, you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you have any questions, please reach out to your portfolio manager or our marketing team at aamcompany.com. During our next podcast, I'll be joined by Marco and another member of our investment team to discuss a timely issue affecting the fixed income markets. Thanks.